This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, before we start the episode today, we want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and for their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting choice.crd.co. That's choice.crd.co. And if you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. And thank you to Ariel Nisenblatt, the founder of Earbuds Podcast Collective, for starting this movement of podcasters making this announcement at the top of their podcasts in a time where people really are looking for help, looking for unity, looking to know what to do. This is an amazing movement to show how many there are of us and how important coming together and unifying over this very important topic is. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. And welcome to my favorite murder. That's Georgia Hartstark. That's Karen Kilgariff. And this is the podcast where you have less rights than you did last time. <laughs> the last time you listened, strangely enough. Does it feel different? Do you feel different? Well, let's just say that, you know, the world is a horrible place. It's hard to have banter at the top of a podcast when uh, shit's all hitting the fan and I don't recognize country I grew up in anymore. But I kind of do. It's always been like this. Right. But there's never been a fascist takeover yes. before. I think that's the big twist that that we've seen it coming, but nobody believed it could be happening. Right. And now it's actually happening. First, it happens to women. It already started happening to trans people. It's really, really dark. Yeah. It's been happening to people of color for the entirety of our of how we've existed. So here we are. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I don't really have much at the top. I'm reading a book called, it's called Mother Hunger, How Adult Daughters Can Understand and Heal from the Lost Nurturance, Protection, and Guidance by Kelly McDaniel. So that's how I'm doing. Right now, that's how I'm, that's what I'm re- reading in my summer vacation that we're about to have, you know, some light beach reading. Yeah. Fun stuff at the beach. Mm-hmm. Fun mom baggage at the beach. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave my baggage at the beach. I mean, I think that, you know, that is a, the silver lining is everything else is so horrifying. It really does put some of that mom baggage into perspective where it's just like, oh, okay, well. Yeah. Have you been on Twitter a lot? No, but I think that it's so soon, it's like we all got hit in the back of the head with a frying pan. Yeah. And everyone is just kind of like, they actually went and did it. And Mm -hmm. it is that feeling. I was so grateful Ariel Nessenblatt got that message together that podcasters can kind of all do to kind of show unity. Mm -hmm. Because that's the kind of thing where it's like, and people tell us this a lot of like looking to us at times like this, Mm -hmm. where it's like, it, every time it gets worse. Yeah. How do you try to stand up and lead people through such extreme, pure insanity? 
and this idea that like, it can't stay this way. We have to fight back. That yeah. idea of like, your company will pay for you to drive out of state. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's not Stop a solution. Stop telling us how to adjust to these laws that are actually, it's an illegitimate Supreme Court. We cannot right. have laws being passed down by religious fanatics in this country. It's the reason right. the country was founded. Yeah. Well, I love that there's a big Jewish representation saying this goes against my religion, yeah. you know, and which I fucking love because it's so true. It's like, well, if it's fine with, if your religion says no and mine says yes, it's okay in certain circumstances, then why are you more correct? Because you're more corrupt? Yeah, that's basically it. So yeah. Yeah. Any opposition that can be used right now, I feel like is just, it's fair game and... It's not going to change, I don't think, but to kind of point out the hypocrisies of it all is just yeah. just as important. For sure. Yeah. To reframe it back to you can, your belief system leads you to not have an abortion. That's completely fine. Fine. That's your life. Yeah. This idea that people's private lives and the way they just have decided to live they want that for everyone. Right. People shouldn't want that. And it's totally unrealistic. And it's very bizarre. It's weird behavior. It's so weird to me to think that we're saying that it's none of our fucking business, what other women choose to do and what circumstances they are in that leads them to it. It has nothing to do with you and me and anyone else, especially not fucking Jesus. And especially not men, politicians in the, yes. you know. Male politicians like, who are like mentally ill. Right. Many of them have terrible records themselves. Right. In terms of how they treat women, how they treat people of color. Like it is just, it's just so overwhelmingly insane and infuriating and beyond belief. And it's clearly dark money. Like right. there's so many things at play and we, the media just keeps telling us like, well, Starbucks will pay for you to drive out of state. Right. Like, no, this will not stand. These laws won't stand there. It goes against the constitution. All of this is in direct conflict with the rights of us, mm -hmm. our inalienable rights. The government doesn't get to tell us what we're doing with our bodies. That's yeah. crazy. Where are the mask people? Right. Where are the mask people? Where are the libertarians? Stand up yeah. and be like, hey, you don't want big government like this. Right. Remember? Right. All right. Well. Well, you know what? We've been through some horrible things going on in this country. And this podcast is supposed to be the thing that you turn on to get away from that. And yet... You know, we certainly don't want to be the kind of people that run away from talking about the horrible shit right. since that's what we do. Right. And that's what we have taught each other how to do over the years. Mm -hmm. But this is so beyond that all I can say is there should be a general strike in this country. Women should absolutely remove all, everything that they are giving to make this culture work since this culture hates them so much and thinks that they can just take rights away and thinks that they can send women to jail for having a miscarriage. Yeah. Like, what is happening? Yeah. What is fucking happening? In their most difficult, life-altering time, punish them for being a woman. You're being punished for being born a woman. It doesn't make sense that these those laws are insane, draconian, bizarre, far-right policy that has is so minority mm -hmm. in its backing. Mm -hmm. Nairal says 80% of Americans support and back abortion rights. This is absolutely minority rule in the craziest, craziest fascist takeover way. Yeah, for sure. So adjust accordingly. Start reading some history books, World War II books. No joke. Start looking at what other people did when the fascists took over. You're going to need to know. Yep. Oh, so yeah, we're taking a couple weeks off, but we have some really great um, episodes for you that we've recorded, interviews with really incredible women, um, a really fun episode at the end of that of uh, a movie that we watch with the incredible women from I Saw What You Did, 
So we're excited about that. We're excited to give you that content and we hope you really like it. Well, yes, exactly. Unlike last summer where we went into reruns entirely um, with the help of some of the Exactly Right hosts this summer, we just pre-recorded a bunch of really cool, fun interviews. So that'll be coming Mm -hmm. up next month. And meanwhile, as we take a break from trying to somehow pretend like nothing's happening when really horrible things are happening, Mm -hmm. we recommend you do the same thing. Yeah, Truly, take care of yourself. Be careful. It's a very, very strange, like, reality adjustment that a lot of people are going through. And, but what's really cool is a lot of people are starting to take action and a lot of people are unifying. And that is the truth. And the LA primaries couldn't have gone better. There's a lot of progressive people that got voted into office. There's a lot of young people that showed up and voted and actually did the thing that everyone bitches about on social media, but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day is the most important thing, whether it sucks or whether it's, you know, whatever, people are doing that. So like, Mm -hmm. there's definitely things to talk about to remind ourselves it's not all horrible, but there's some horrible shit going on. Horrible. Take care of yourself. Make sure you're you're paying attention to your own mental health. All right. Well, I think you're first this week, right? Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant, like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made-in, made-in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Long ago when we were planning these episodes and we knew that this would be the last episode before uh, that we would record. This would for us be the last episode before our vacation. I think Hannah suggested this or Gemma suggested it. I can't remember who. But it was basically anyone who loves the film Ferris Bueller knows that he calls himself Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago in that movie. Right. um, To get into that restaurant. And... The truth is that there was a sausage king of Chicago. His name was Adolf Lutgert, and he killed his wife. And so this is the story. Wow. 
of the real sausage king of Chicago, who was also a murderer, Adolf Lukert. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. The sources on this story today, there is a Yale Review article by Harold Schechter called The Sausage Vat Murder. There is, of course, Wikipedia, the Wikipedia page. There is um, a Chicago Tribune article by Edward Bauman and John O'Brien. There's a website called grunge.com, and there is an article on it by Samantha Sanders. There's a website called Historical Crime Detective and an article by Jason Lucky Morrow. And there's a Huffington Post article by Robert Lorzel. There's a website called Chicagoology that has an article on this. And there's a website called Alchemy of Bones, findagrave.com, and a website called Chronicling America that has two different articles about it. Adolf Lutgert is born on December 27th, 1845 to his parents Christian and Margreta in the German city of Gütersloh. He's the fourth child of 16. No. No. Of a schoolhouse of a family. No. Fourth child of 16. He also has a twin brother. So at this time, basically, Germany as we know it does not exist in terms of being one country. The place where Adolf grows up is in the province of Westphalia. It has a population of around 3,000 people. When he's still a baby, there's a a terrible famine in Germany. And I don't know if it's this one because this was the, you know, the 1800s. But did you know that like Hansel and Gretel and those stories, the Grimm Brothers fairy tale stories, like when they have kids in the mm-hmm. forest, like wandering around. Those are based on true stories of famine in Germany mm. where people, children would be orphaned and lost. Right. And then if they got caught, they would be eaten by adults who were starving. Oh my God. Uh-huh. I read that recently on some kind of like, did you know, like this is what this was based on it. Cause the names Hansel and Gretel were the were like saying John and Mary, like the yeah. most common names of the time. Yeah. And it was essentially just like, yeah. Oh, this God. was something that happened culturally. But I think it it may have been an earlier famine, like in the 1600s. That's yeah. what I thought I remembered from this article. Wow. Yeah. Just thought I'd I'd string it together (laughs) to some super dark famine stuff. Got to have it in there. So crops fail, food prices skyrocket around the time the German Revolution erupts in 1848. And this basically was what caused the great migration of German Mm -hmm. people to America. Much like the Irish famine made everybody come, Germany was becoming the kind of place where you had to get out. You had to go find a new place to, Uh to make your start. So basically, in 1860, 14-year-old Adolf leaves school to take a job as a tanning apprentice to a man named Ferdinand Nabel. This was very common for like young men to go get, if their fathers had a trade or they could get an apprenticeship, mm-hmm. they would leave school to go learn their trade and, he, and also live with the family of the person that's teaching them their trade. So he basically finishes his apprenticeship when he's 17 and sets off traveling around Germany, picking up work where he can. In 1865, when he's 19, he travels to London, but he can only get work scrubbing in restaurant kitchens. So he only stays there for six months. And so he decides then to move to New York in 1865. So two of his brothers have already made the journey and settled in both Chicago and Baltimore. So he believes that he too can travel to America and find, uh, make a better life for himself with 30 bucks in his pocket. Jesus. Right? Adolph doesn't stay in New York City. He actually almost immediately goes to Quincy, Illinois, where his brother Henry lives. But when he fails to find work in Quincy, he goes into the city and goes to Chicago. And he finds a job as a tanner at Union Hide and Leather Company. And he also, of course, gets a second job to make ends meet. So from 1867 to 1872, Adolph continues to work for tanneries and saves $4,000. Yeah. Which is the today's equivalent... 4,000 in 1872, 95,800 in today's money. How? That's so much money for like a young tanner, I would imagine. He's busting ass and he is not fucking around. He's not buying himself new shoes. Right. He is saving every penny. Right. 
So he uses this money to start his own business as a wholesale liquor dealer, which is actually kind of smart. He buys property at the corner of A and Dole Mac Streets in the Nicholsonville neighborhood, which was named after the Nicholson Distillery. So he... He buys and sells liquor from the basement of the building that he buys, and then he lives in the building. Mm-hmm. So at this point in time, Chicago is the second largest city in the United States. The economy's booming. The Great Fire just happened the year before. So it's 1871 is when the Great Chicago Fire mm-hmm. happened, killed 300 people, leaves 100,000 homeless, destroys 17,000 structures. Mm causes 2 million in damage. So if you, 2 million in damage then, when 4,000 is 95,000, don't even get me started with math. You love math. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So remember the story of when I told of the Great Chicago Fire and all the people were just standing in the lake staring at the city burning? Yeah. Remember that part? Yeah. That's from like five years ago. Yeah. Chicago's rebuilding itself and it's got all the industries. It's got the big hogs. It's got the slaughterhouses. It's got this guy with his liquor. Mm -hmm. It's all happening. So on April 13th, 1872, when he's 26 years old, at Adolph Mary's, a 23-year-old woman named Caroline Rupka. So he his business is doing so well, he moves to Clyburn and Webster Avenues and he combines the sales with a saloon tavern. And then they live in the building again, rooms above the store. January of 1873, Adolph's new wife, Caroline, gives birth to their son, Max, and then a second son named Arnold, a little less than two years later. Sadly, the same year that his brother Arnold is born, Max dies when he's two years old. Mm. Very bad infant mortality back then. Uh, November 17th, 1877, 27-year-old Caroline succumbs to periodontitis, and she dies she leaves Adolf a single father to a two and a half year old boy. Ugh. Adolf sends his son to live with Caroline's mother while he stays in the building running the store and, and running his liquor empire. Two months after Caroline's death on January 18, 1878, 32 year old Adolf Lukert remarries. Two months. Yikes. His new bride is a 23-year-old Louisa Bicknees. And he actually, when he proposes, gives Louisa a 14-karat gold wedding ring that's engraved with her new initials, LL. Hmm. Um, So Louisa's also from Germany. She is the second youngest of six children. And when she was 17, she and her 15-year-old brother, Diedrich, sail from Bremen to New York City. They arrive in America on November 12th, 1872. And then Gemma put a note that said, I'm not sure how Louisa makes her way from New York City to Chicago. What I would like to tell you, Gemma, and everybody else, is that I know how because that's how my grandmother emigrated to San Francisco. Wow. She came in Ellis Island. She and her two sisters, and my grandmother was also 17. Mm-hmm. She and her two sisters were brought to the Lower East Side and put into a tenement house. Mm-hmm. And basically, when my grandmother got to the tenement house, their sponsor was like, "We're coming. I'm coming back tomorrow. And you guys were going to put you in some, like they were going to go be maids. The second the guy left, my grandma turned to her two sisters and says, I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting out of here. And they went down to Grand Central Station, took a train from New York City to Chicago. Wow. And then from Chicago to California. That's how they got to San Francisco. So I bet that train to Chicago out of uh, NYC was very popular. Yeah. It was rough my, for immigrants. My uh, my great grandparents went to Chicago too. Did they? Mm-hmm. And uh, Philadelphia? That's not right. Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland. <laughs> but they came through Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Many, many did. That's the way. Many to escape religious persecution <laughs> and fanaticism. Definitely mine. And now it's being taken away all over. Again. And now. It only took us about 100 years to forget how much it sucks. So basically, Louisa, my guess is she takes that train Mm -hmm. to Chicago, gets there. She also becomes a domestic servant. She barely speaks English. At some point, she meets Adolf. It's kind of mysterious how they met. Mm -hmm. They fall in love, get married. And then basically, 
Louisa knows that she's, you know, she's the wife and she soon, will soon be a mother. But she also supports Adolf's commercial ambitions. She really wants him to succeed. She knows his business is going great, but she also wants him to save money. And she wants him to be very, you know, careful just so they can be as successful as possible. So in the fall of 1879, 33-year-old Adolf sells his liquor business and starts a meat route, making and selling sausages door to door. Hmm. Can you imagine? You're just like, knock, knock, knock. Knock, knock, Do you knock. need any bacon? <laughs> just right there on your doorstep. So, and the couple end up having four children and two of them die of cholera mm. um, because that was the time, you know, that's, it was pretty common back then. Yeah. So they've moved basically from the city out to a farm in Elgin, Illinois. But Louisa doesn't like being away from the city. And she tells Adolf she wants to go back. And she urges him to take steps to basically continue growing this sausage business. Like she really sees um, a future in it. Mm -hmm. So basically what Adolf did was he manufactured summer sausage in the winter. And that basically, it's a very, in Europe, it was a, popular style of sausage because it doesn't require refrigeration. Uh So the meat is slightly fermented, usually consists of beef and pork. And then you, because it's fermented, you can, it keeps for a long time. So it's really popular. Mm -hmm. So Adolf takes his earnings and he builds his own factory, which becomes the A.L. Lutgart Sausage and Packing Company. He buys a place on North and Sheffield Avenues. So it's basically a commercial property. And then the family home is all built. Like that's how well they're doing. They They have a whole compound. Mm -hmm. And so they move in in 1886. But by 1891, Louisa has had enough. She cannot live next to the sausage factory anymore. (laughs) Imagine the smell. Oof. And the fermentation smell, especially. Ew. Fermentation, old sausage, Mm. awful. Mm -hmm. Mm O-F-F-A-L. Not cool. Mm -mm. So in the spring of 1891, 45-year-old Adolf buys land on Howe Street the family moves again. They have another child named Elmer and everything is going well. The business is going really well. So Adolf purchases property at the southwest corner of Diversity Parkway and Hermitage Avenue on the northwest side of Chicago for $141,000. So basically his plan, he buys the spot. He's going to build a five-story brick factory, but Louisa doesn't want him to put that much money into it. He's like, let's just spend it all and let's go for it. You know, we're having a soft sausage renaissance. And she's just like, don't do it. Mm -hmm. He also wants to take on borrowed money from investors. Like he wants to really go for it. And she's like, diversify. Yeah. It's basically a thing they fight over all the time. And I think she is so assertive and he's kind of like, how dare you? You're Mm -hmm. not, you know, it's, hold on, it's the 1880s and I'm a man. Mm -hmm. How dare you tell me anything? So he forges ahead with his plans. The five-story building is a warehouse. There's also a grocery store in it, Adolf's office, and then a basement where the actual sausage curing vats are housed. Then there's a smaller building on the site that's the sausage factory. And then the family's three-story home is next to the sausage factory. So it wasn't really planned out very well. And that new compound they move in in 1894. So this is the point where Adolf becomes the sausage king of Chicago. He is known throughout the city. You know, he actually goes out walking and he's a very imposing presence because it's most of the time he has great Danes that he walks. And so people know who he is and he's kind of like this local character. So... Adolf and Louisa's fights about money and the running of the business escalate into violence. Adolf is physically abusive to his wife. In the mid-1890s, a 22-year-old cousin of Louisa's named Mary Simmering comes to stay with the couple to work as a servant. And Adolf starts flirting with Mary, which of course pisses Louisa off. And then there's also a woman who is the saloon owner across the street's wife. Mm -hmm. And her name is Agatha Tosh. And he's very friendly with her as well. So, and there's then there's also a wealthy widow named Christine Felt. Louise is basically getting it from all sides, hearing that he just is like, he can't get enough of these women that are basically in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, she's super pissed. She makes it clear that she's unhappy about it, that she doesn't like her husband's extramarital activities. He starts sleeping in the factory, he's got a room off of his office that he starts sleeping in. And that's also where he entertains 
these women that he's becoming friends with. <laughs> They're just friends. Besties. Okay, so to make things worse, the sausage business starts to decline. Mm -mm. Yeah. In 1896, the country's plunged into an economic depression. So he's basically constantly expanding his business and then he's borrowing from kind of shady, dangerous people. And he just keeps borrowing money. But when the economy slows down, 50-year-old Adolf finds himself struggling to repay his debts and his creditors are powerful and dangerous people. So we're thinking... Yeah, yeah, some some mafia types. Yeah. So Adolf now knows if he doesn't find a solution that he'll lose his business. So, of course, that's even worse. So the marriage isn't going well, then the business isn't going well. And then Louisa's coming to him being like, I told you not to invest all this right. money. I told you. Right. Basically, like you didn't listen to me. So on March 11th, 1897, Adolf buys 50 pounds of arsenic and 375 pounds of potash, which is a highly caustic potassium-rich salt, which is similar to lye. They usually use it in making soap and liquefying fat. Like so, fight club. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. So a month after he makes that purchase on April 24th, Adolf tells a factory employee named Frank Odorsky to help him pour the potash into a steam vat with water. So Frank's think this is weird. He has never known potash to be used in any sort of sausage-making process, but he does as he's told because... He's dealing with the Sausage King. Mm -hmm. What choice does he have? So on the evening of May 1st, 1897, Adolf tells factory watchman Frank Bielk to bring two barrels of potash to the basement boiler room. Frank watches as Adolf pours the potash into one of the vats and turns on the steam line, boiling the water and the potash mixture. And then that night around 10 o'clock, Adolf sends Frank to the drugstore to get him some medication at 10 o'clock at night in the 1800s. <laughs> like, what? Is it 24-hour, like, a right. CVS Head up from the back CVS, in the day? please. What would it be? Can we just take a moment? I bet you can knock on the door of the pharmacist and be like, Gregory, it's, it's me. It feels like back then everyone lived above their store right. or shop. Mm -hmm. That was kind of like the rule. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. You could send someone and just be like, I need something in a blue bottle with a label, a handwritten label on the front of it. Can you come down here? Mm -hmm. I just really want to go to a pharmacy from 1897. Oh, a grocery, a grocery would be amazing. A green grocer or a fucking, <sighs> I would love that. Even those pictures where like the cool, you know, the ladder that rolls down the thing and they mm -hmm. go get things off of the top shelf and mm -hmm. all that shit. Like everything was kind of like wood cut and like perfectly, this is the... Yeah. The candy sales area had its yeah. own jar. And like jars and things and... It's just beautiful. Ap apothecary. That's the thing I want to see. Apothecary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you can go and just get a little, a, just a little bottle of cocaine for yourself. Just for later <laughs> when the kids go to bed. A little pep every morning. Just so you gotta look at the lake and have a good time. Not long after Adolf sends Frank to go do his errand, several witnesses see Adolf and his wife, Louisa, who's only about five feet tall, mm -hmm. the wife. Mm. They enter the factory and they, so like from their house into the factory. Charles Hankst, who's walking past the factory around the same time, hears a noise that he believes sounds like screaming. When Frank Bialk returns from the errand, he can tell that Adolf is in the boiler room, but the door's locked. So he doesn't know who else is in there. He doesn't, he doesn't go inside. No one knows exactly what went on in the boiler room that night, but it ends with Adolf placing his wife's dead and fully clothed body into the vat of potash and water. Mm. And that highly alkaline mixture begins to dissolve Louisa's body. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. So they do know that Adolf went and returned and checked on the vat basically for the next couple of days and was just constantly checking it. Mm. And he actually ends up recruiting some employees from the sausage factory to go help him clean up and dispose of a rancid red-colored liquid that was spilling over the side of the vat. Oh. So they empty the vat, they scrub it of any evidence of flesh or bone, and then that liquid is dumped into the factory furnace. 
He thought of a real messy way of doing it. Yes. And also a really public way of doing it. Public and messy. Cocky, almost. A cocky way of doing it. Yes. And kind of a stupid way of doing it. Yeah. Adolf tells his sons that their mother went to visit her sister and he doesn't know why she hasn't come back. Hmm. So clearly not thought through. Right. No plan. No. Louise's brother, Diedrich, tries to make contact with her but she's never at home or at the factory or anywhere for that matter. No one else in the family has heard from her either. Diedrich becomes concerned and then suspicious, especially when Adolf is dismissive of his brother-in-law's questions about Louise's whereabouts. So Diedrich reports his sister is missing on May 8th, 1897. So when the police go to speak with Adolf, he tells them that Louise has run away with another man but then they search the Lugart home and they notice that Louisa hasn't taken any of her belongings on this trip. That's when Adolf changes his story. He says, because of the business's dire financial situation, Louisa has taken her own life. Hmm. He claims that on the night that she was last seen, he was in the company of his friend Charles Mater. But officers find sales receipts documenting Adolf's purchase of both arsenic and potash just before the murder. So when they ask him what he uses those chemicals for, he says he has it to make soap to clean the factory. But the amount of potash that he has purchased would have made around 2,000 pounds of soap. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Which would be... Too much soap. Very, yeah, cost prohibitive right. for actually using that soap to <laughs> clean. It's too much soap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So police grow increasingly suspicious that Adolf not only knows more than he's saying, but that he's directly involved in his wife's disappearance. On May 15th, officers search the factory, and that's when they make their way to the boiler room in the basement where they see a large vat. So peering inside, they see remnants of the slimy, red, foul-smelling potash solution. And when the remaining sludge at the bottom of the vat is drained, police find two rings, one of which is Louise's wedding ring, Mm. which is easily identified with the engraved initials of LL. Yeah. what more do you want? Come on, dude. Like, he's not even trying. (laughs) No. And then underneath the vat, they find partially dissolved human teeth. And then they search the drain pipes. That's when they find particles of human bone. They then search the furnace, and they find even more grisly evidence, along with burned sausages. There's steel boning that's the kind that's used in women's corsets. Those are found inside the furnace. More human bone fragments are found in the factory yard. So basically, the police now are searching for Charles Mater, who is the only person that can hold up the alibi claim of Adolf's. But they discover that Mater has fled to Europe. A great sign. Mm -hmm. So investigators then speak to more people who know the couple, the Lutgerts, and Adolf's friends, Agatha and Christine, the the women he was messing around with. They both tell police that Adolf told them on numerous occasions that he wishes his wife, Louisa, was dead. So when Adolf's employees and the watchman, Frank, tell officers about assisting Adolf in the days leading up to and after the murder, Adolf is arrested on May 17th, 1897. He insists he's innocent and he has no knowledge of where his wife is. On June 6th, Adolf is indicted by a grand jury to stand trial for murder and they refuse bail. So basically between Adolf's arrest and the beginning of his trial in August of 1897, the company's sausage sales plummet because just as you said, there's a murder in the building where <laughs> they make the sausages. So immediately the the rumor mill has yeah. it that Louise's body was in the sausages. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. That's how he actually disposed of her, which is horrifying, disgusting. And also, you would only need to hear that. Even just the slightest suggestion, you wouldn't be able to eat that sausage. No, definitely not. In my opinion. I challenge you. (laughs) It actually That rumor actually gets put to bed publicly when it's pointed out that Adolf wasn't manufacturing sausages at that time of year. But as we all know, by that point, it doesn't matter what the truth is. Right. The trial receives a ton of media attention. Newspaper reporters from all over the country are sent to Chicago to cover the trial. And every day for the first couple months of the proceedings, there are mobs of spectators at the Cook County Courthouse Mm -hmm. where it's being held, even back in 1897. 
Yeah. The biggest hurdle for the prosecution is proving murder in the absence of a body. So aside from the bone fragments, there are no sizable remains belonging to Louisa that are recovered. The prosecution alleges that the potash solution liquefied Louisa's soft tissue and dissolved most of her bones, but that's difficult to prove. So the state has a novel and unprecedented ace up its sleeve. For the first time in U.S. legal history, the prosecution calls forensic anthropologist George Amos Dorsey from Chicago's Field Columbian Museum hmm. as an expert witness. Oh. Right? So... George Dorsey testifies that the bone fragments found in the furnace include bones from human feet and toes and the posterior end of a human rib. And the court hears that amongst the bones found in the factory yard are the remains of a human skull. The prosecution goes so far as to conduct an experiment to see what happens to a human body submerged in a potash solution. Ooh. People must have been talking about yeah. this trial for ever. Yeah. Because that's pretty, that's pretty wild um, that they did that test. And they dissolved a cadaver in the same vat where Louise's body was disposed. Wow. After the mixture containing the body is boiled for two hours, nothing remains mm -hmm. at the end except for the, like some of the larger bones. The prosecution also points to the discovery of what are proved to be Louise's rings at the end. So right. that's kind of the, very damning. Also, that woman, Agatha Toach, who I believe is a saloon owner's wife from across the street, she tells the court that on the night of the murder, she'd seen smoke coming from the factory chimney. At that time, Agatha thinks this is odd, given that the factory isn't meant to be manufacturing at the end of the fall season. And then the woman, Christine Felt, gives damning testimony, telling the court that the day of Adolf's arrest, he gives her a four-and-a-half-inch pocket knife for safekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> right? The knife, which is rusted and stained, uh, we don't know with what, is passed around the courtroom. And Adolf admits it's his, and he inspects it, running his fingernail along the blade, but he shows no emotion. Mm. The prosecution tells the courtroom this is the murder weapon. So the defense argues that on the night Louisa disappeared, she left the house voluntarily. They point to evidence by people from as many as 12 different states who had contacted the police to claim they had seen Louisa Lutgart. One particularly popular story is that she'd fled her violent husband and boarded a ship back to Europe. But there were no sightings of Louisa outside of the U.S. Mm -hmm. ever. They were never reported. Yeah. Adolf's general demeanor during the proceedings is one of a relaxed and confident man who clearly thinks he's going to be acquitted. But October 21st, 1897, the jury comes back and they cannot decide. And so it's a hung jury. Mm -hmm. In December of 1897, Adolf's second trial begins. And again, the prosecution calls that same forensic anthropologist, George Dorsey. When Adolf takes the stand, this time around, he's questioned for 18 and a half hours. Jesus. Yeah. Most of his responses are a combination of I don't know or I don't remember. Mm -hmm. So... Those poor jurors. Yeah, and the funny thing is it's three months later. Right. It's not like they had to wait five years. Right. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So on February 9th, 1898, the second jury finally reaches a definitive conclusion and 52-year-old Adolf Lutgart is found guilty and sentenced to life in prison at Illinois State Penitentiary. His attorney immediately begins working on an appeal, but soon after Adolf is imprisoned, he starts complaining that Louisa's ghost is tormenting him. Mm. And what's strange is around the same time, the Lutgart's neighbors report seeing, they think they're seeing Louise's ghost back from the dead in the house, ooh. which I think is the fact that both of those things are happening simultaneously. Yeah. are like, ooh, what's going on? Creepy. 18 months after Adolf's conviction, on the morning of July 7th, 1899, the 53-year-old man is found dead in his prison cell Despite some accounts claiming that Louisa haunted her husband until he died, the cause of death is officially recorded as fatty degenerative heart disease. So in the years following Adolf's conviction and death, the Lutgart family home moves at least once from its original location on Hermitage Avenue. Only one tenant moves into the Lutgart's house 
after the murder, but they don't stay long. And no one else seems to want to live in the house, probably because the gossip has gotten around that her ghost is haunting it. There's a fire at the sausage factory in June of 1904 that destroys part of the building, but not all of it entirely. And at this point, the former factory is now occupied by the library bureau. So it still exists today. What? In the late 90s, it was converted into condos, but the sausage factory building remains standing today on the south side of the 1700 block of West Diversity Parkway. Wow. In Chicago, Illinois. Do you live there? Anyone listening? Tell us about the ghosts. Are your lights constantly going on and off? <laughs> and that is the terrible horrible nightmare story of Adolf Lutgart, the murderous Chicago sausage king. Wow, that's fucked up. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. All right. Great job. Oh, thank you. Moving right along, I'm going to tell you... (laughs) I'm going to tell you about the strange disappearance of Laureen Ron. So the sources I use today are the New Hampshire Department of Justice website, the Doe Network, the Charlie Project, an in-depth case summary written by uh, by Ramen Alien on Reddit. Oh. <laughs> and a Medium article written by Brenda Thornlow. On April 3rd, 1966, Laureen Ron is born in Manchester, New Hampshire, Um, When she's still a baby, her parents divorce. She stays with her mom. She rarely sees her dad. And by 1980, mom and daughter are living in an apartment in Manchester, New Hampshire, which is right outside of Bedford, and it's about an hour from Boston. Laureen, uh, who's in junior high now, is smart and outgoing. Her aunt said that she's, quote, pleasant and happy all the time. Just kind of a normal young, um, young teen. And um, by junior high, she's on the honor roll. She loves to sing and dance, and she dreams of being an actress someday. But while in junior high, like so many of us, Laureen starts rebelling and spends a lot of her time hanging out in the neighborhood, which in, in her neighborhood, it's on the rougher side. She starts smoking weed and drinking. One of Laureen's aunts later says Laureen is, quote, an angel who hung around with the wrong people for a while, which... Amen. On April 26, 1980, Laureen's mom, Judith, goes out of town with her boyfriend. He's a professional tennis player and he has a tournament that day. And Laureen usually goes with them, but this time she asks if she can stay at the apartment alone. It's the first night of spring break. She wants to hang out with her friends and have the house to herself, like any 14-year-old would. So Lorraine spends the day hanging around the neighborhood, then invites two friends over. And the friends have never been named, but we know they're a 14-year-old girl and a 21-year-old boy. And according to them, they go to Lorraine's apartment around 11 o'clock at night and they drink beer and wine cooler. And so after they drink for a while, Lorraine's girlfriend goes to sleep in Lorraine's bed. She gets drunk. And Lorraine and the male friends sit on the couch in the living room hanging out. Um, and that's when the male friend says that he thought they they think they heard someone in the hallway coming to the apartment door and Laureen, thinking her mom might be coming home early, um, just like rushes the guy friend out the back door. But actually, it, her mom doesn't get home until around 1.15. 
And as she and her boyfriend walk up to the third floor apartment hallway, they notice that every hallway light is out. So it's completely pitch black. So she figures a fuse burnt out or something. But when she and her boyfriend reach the apartment, they find that the door is unlocked, which is weird because Judith is really careful with, you know, her and her daughter are really careful and they make sure the house is locked all the time. So um, once inside, Judith goes to look in on Laureen in her room and sees someone in Laureen's bed and she figures it's her. But then Judith's boyfriend notices that the apartment's back door has been left wide open, which Laureen would never do. And so Judith double checks on her daughter in the bedroom again and realizes it's Laureen's friend. Mm. And the friend says Laureen is sleep- should be sleeping on the couch, but of course... She's not on the couch. There's only a pillow and blanket there, but there's no sign of Laureen. There's also no sign of a struggle and nothing seems to be missing. And um, But however, Laureen didn't take clothes or money or any personal items with her, including her brand new favorite shoes, um, which are in the living room. Like she, it's almost like she had taken the shoes off and laid down on the couch with a pillow or something and something happened. Judith and her boyfriend start searching the neighborhood for Lorene and can't find anything. And by around 3.45 a.m., Judith reports her daughter missing. Of course, police ask if Judith and Lorene had had a fight recently. Judith said they had a little, little disagreement, but that wasn't something Lorene would run away over. But police cling to that idea. And so in their minds, Lorene's a runaway. She's 14. She's from a, quote, broken home. It happens all the time. But Judith says that she and Laureen are best friends, are really close. Laureen would never do this. When police speak to the friends who had been with Laureen that night, the male tells police that when Laureen snuck him out the back door, when they thought the mom was coming home, he distinctly remembered her locking the door after he left. The girl was too drunk to remember much of anything. She's later hypnotized, hoping that she remembers something, but it doesn't work. One of Laureen's neighbors tells police that around the same time um, that Laureen and her male friend had heard voices, he had also heard voices in the hallway. He said he heard footsteps going towards Laureen's apartment, then everything went silent. And then they find out that all the lights that are out in the hallway, the reason they're out is not a fuse being busted, but someone had un- lightly unscrewed every light bulb. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. A week after Laureen disappears, police still think she might be a runaway, although because of that, those weird little incidents, they're, they're starting to believe something might have happened to her. A bus station employee says he sold a ticket to a girl who looked like Laureen, and he said he dropped her off in Park Square in Boston. But later, he sees another updated picture of Laureen and doesn't think it's her. Judith goes to the FBI, but of course, they can't do anything about it without an evidence of kidnapping. They do tell Judith that it's possible Laureen has been sold into, quote, white slavery. Hmm. And they give Laureen um, the number of two private investigators who she does hire, but they never find anything of interest. Finally, police start to suspect that Laureen didn't actually run away because she doesn't contact anyone. Um, They theorize that she willingly went outside through the back door and planned to return to the apartment, but was met with foul play outside instead. They do find in the neighborhood, there's a 35-year-old man who's known to invite teen girls to his apartment and gives them beer. He's the known owner of child pornography magazines, and but they never find any evidence linking him. In November of 1980, Judith looks over her phone bills and notices that she'd been billed for three calls placed in Santa Monica, California on October 1st. So Judith knows she didn't make these calls. So did someone, you know, wondering, did someone make them from her apartment? But that's not what happened. According to Medium, calls could be charged to your own number by calling the phone company and entering a PIN code. But Judith has no ties to anyone in California. So there isn't an explanation for who the calls were made by. And she starts theorizing that Laureen had made these calls. So two of the calls were to a motel in Santa Ana, And the third was to a hotline for teens who had questions about sex. So police contact the doctor who runs the hotline out of California, but he says he doesn't know anything about that call or Laureen. So this starts to get really like tangled and weird. Judith also and her sister also start receiving mysterious phone calls. And when the call is answered, the person on the other end 
just doesn't say anything and hangs up. The calls come in around 3.45 a.m., which is the time Laureen was reported missing. After around a year, the calls taper off. However, for a few years, the calls do return around Christmas time. And they finally stop when Judith remarries and moves to Florida and changes her number. But one of Judith's other sisters, Janet, also receives calls. One comes from a young girl asking for Mike. And Janet has a son named Michael, who's Lorraine's favorite cousin. And Lorraine's the only person who calls him Mike. So it's very suspicious. But when Mike comes to the phone, the caller's gone. Then in 1985, police look back into the hotline call Judith was billed for, and they speak to the doctor again who runs the hotline. And this is where things get weird and confusing because there isn't, there isn't a ton known about this. The doctor has changed his story now. He says runaway girls often visited his wife at their house. Mm-mm. And he remembers that one of the girls might have been from New Hampshire. In 1985, the male friend who was there that night with Laureen, the night she disappeared, he takes his own life. He leaves a note saying he, quote, couldn't take it anymore. Um, But he was never a suspect, and Laureen's family wonder if maybe he just knew more and was scared or something like that. I mean, I I was going to say in the beginning, it's super weird that a 21-year-old is hanging out with 14-year-old girls. Yeah. 14-year-old girls are babies. That's like just out of junior high. Yeah. There is no reason for those two sets of people to to be quote-unquote hanging out together. At 14, I hung out and drank with 21-year-olds, and they were, looking back, so fucking sketchy, but at the time. But then it was also 1980. Watch that movie, um, Over the Edge? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) people just hung out together. No, that's, it's true. I I don't mean that about that person, but I mean, it's just kind of like, it's... It's not, imagine that today. No. It simply would not be. Right, Like right. that's, it's the wild openness and kind of like, yeah, I it would just be, I, that's the first person I would absolutely check on, which right. maybe is what he's talking about of saying he can't take it anymore. It's just like, he can't take the suspicion. Right, totally. I will say some articles say he's 15, but from what I was able to find the most of, said he was 21. Okay. So the next year in 1986, an investigator travels to California and finds the motels where the build calls were placed. According to the officers, the two motels had been on the police's radar in 1980 for a different reason. They were bases for a number of sex trafficking rings at the time. Hmm. Uh Uh-huh. And um, it turns out that a lot of uh, child pornography was filmed there. And the investigation into the trafficking rings had uncovered that the leader at the time was a man known as Dr. Z. And he was a child pornographer. Police are never able to find any ties between Dr. Z and the hotline or Laureen. However, police have never ruled out this theory completely. Um, And it's just so like ominous and there's not a ton of information about it, but it's like, you know... It's it's too big of a coincidence, right? Yes, I completely agreed. Also, because that was the time where like 800 numbers were starting yes, and yes. Like the phone, it was a very strange time where the phone really was a thing that got used so much more. Yeah. But you telling me it's a it's a hotline for teenage girls to call and ask questions about sex. Right. That's about the most like what in the living hell are you talking about service I've ever heard of? Like, it's not like they're not calling the nurses station at a local hospital. That's such an inappropriate thing to have like a hotline for that it would be very interesting to know what the qualifications of the people on the other end of that. If it was like, yes, it's us, the Women's Health Center. Right. And we're, it's a bunch of women and retired nurses answering these questions. Right. It doesn't sound like that. No. No. So besides the hotline, Dr. Z, and those California calls, there haven't really been any solid leads. With that said, though, there are some other young women who disappeared in that area around the time Laureen went missing, and they look similar to Laureen, which might not mean anything. You know, everyone kind of looked the same in the 80s, right? They did. Everyone had feathered hair. Exactly. Parted up the middle. Right. Girls had boys' haircuts. Right. Lots of makeup and, you know, wild wet and wild lip gloss and stuff. Yeah. These cases have never been specifically linked, but it's worth mentioning because there's some coincidences that are like, again, too big. 
or the red herrings. So on March 22nd, 1980, 15-year-old Rachel Garden, she buys a few things at a corner store at a market in Newton, which is around 45 minutes from Manchester, where Lorraine's from. She then starts walking to a friend's where she's going to spend the night and she never makes it and she's never seen again. Yeah. So then on June 8th, 1980, 25-year-old single mother of two, Denise Denault, leaves a private social club in downtown Manchester around 1.30 a.m. And that's where Laureen went missing from. Mm. She says she's going to another party, but Denise is never seen again. And then we'll much later find out that her neighbor from literally a couple doors down is none other than suspected serial killer Terry Rasmussen, who's very likely responsible for the Bearbrook State Park murders. Oh, that shit. That fucking evil that guy monster. Is disgusting. So Terry died in prison in 2010. It's strongly believed that Rasmussen is responsible for the murders of a woman and then three small children whose bodies were found in barrels in the woods near Bearbrook State Park in Allenston, New Hampshire, which is close by. So he lived in that fucking neighborhood two blocks from Laureen at that time. Mm. Like wow. that, and this man is an evil monster. So these women, young girls, young women going missing... There's another coincidence that seems like... Too much of a coincidence. Too much, yeah. Today, most investigators who worked the case believe Laureen was murdered the night she went missing or sometime soon after. Um, and one officer says he still thinks that the friends that were at the house that night know what happened to Laureen, but are too afraid to say, and mm -hmm. we're too afraid to say anything. If she is still alive today, Laureen would be 55 years old. And it, those phone calls are so odd, aren't they? Like... Yes. It's, that's another, there's like these weird coincidences that could just be red herrings in this case. But, but when you said that they were from motels. Yeah. Like, and also you, you saying the phrase like white slavery or whatever, but that's just an antiquated, very problematic way of basically expressing sex trafficking. Right. Exactly. It's essentially what in the 70s and 80s people thought was an imaginary. Right thing that now we know to be sex trafficking that's very real and happens all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely possible that that's, that, that she was kidnapped that night. And, that's, and that she was told, if you do this or that, if you call your mother, or you do something directly, I'll kill right. them. Or some kind of, you know, right. a threat, one of the many threats that we know that people use to kind of coerce and control people. And then, yeah, so she would just be calling to hear people's voice or, I mean, it's just so sad. Well, there is one other call that happened. So the, the mom moved away, so had a different phone number. So um, a childhood friend of Laureen in, in 1986, the friend named Roger tells police that a woman had called him. He wasn't around, but Roger's mother answered the phone and the woman said her name was Lori or Laureen. She couldn't remember which. And the woman said she was Roger's ex-girlfriend and Roger had dated Laureen when they were around 12 years old. So maybe oh. she's just thinking of phone numbers that she had memorized back then because oh. that was all she had access to and just wanted to hear someone's voice. That's a really good point. So sad. Yeah. Laureen's been missing for 41 years. Judith still maintains that her daughter could be alive. And she said that if she could tell Laureen anything, it would be, quote, please call us. We miss you. We love you. No matter why you left, whatever reason, it doesn't matter. We just want to make sure you're in good health and you're fine. And that is the mysterious disappearance of Laureen Ron. R-A-H-N, if you want to look at that. God, that would be so awful. Like you're getting mystery calls from California. Totally. Just nightmarish. That's, it reminds me of the Johnny Gosh case where it's right. just like these parents are tortured for the rest of their lives, essentially. Right. And it could just be some hang-up call that your phone is randomly ringing, but you want to hold on to that hope, you know? But man, yeah, the light bulb's just slightly being turned. Yes. That's so sinister. It's like, and it's also so, that's like a recurring thing that happens all the time. Yeah, that's sinister. She, the fact that the back door was wide open, like maybe she just went out for a smoke. She didn't have her shoes on or she didn't have her shoes with her. Went out for yep. a cigarette. And this fucking serial killer is living down the street from her. Yeah, yeah. Like who shady. knows? So shady. God, it's weird. I don't feel better. 
those two stories and I don't feel better. What are you talking how, how? What do you mean? I mean, I don't know. Uh, Sorry, I did. What I should have said is great job. Thank you. Thank you. Um, very sad story. Yeah. It those every cold case, I just I just then have so many wishes of wanting to know the truth. Me too. So frustrating. It is. So frustrating. I mean, maybe someday we will, you know? Yeah, true. <sighs> um, hey, look, everybody, we love you. Mm-hmm. We're with you. Mm-hmm. Yep. We're in this together. We've got each other's backs as we always do. We are used to bullshit and we're used to oppression. Mm-hmm. I was reading a thing this morning about all of the Black women who stood up when the Anita Hill thing was happening and people were trying to talk about Clarence Thomas and how awful he was Mm -hmm. and no one would listen to black women. No. Also, just take care of yourself. Truly. Pay attention. If you're like me and you don't love feeling feelings, be especially attentive to yourself because you might convince yourself you're fine and then you're in the grocery store crying because a certain song comes on. If that happens, who gives a shit? Yeah. No one cares. You get to do what you want. You get to be a little weak. You get to reach out to your friends. Mm-hmm. Talk to older women that you know. Don't be alone. Don't isolate. Yeah. Communicate and then and participate. Uh, well, we'll be back. Uh, we hope you enjoy the July episodes. We are really proud of them. And hopefully when we're back, we'll have some fun time, good news to talk about. And we could talk about Fire Island and the fun shows we've watched instead of doom and gloom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll get to take. Well, th- this is absolutely, obviously, a mental health break for us. Yeah. But um, it, and it couldn't come at a better time. But, you know, along with that, Take care of yourselves. Mm-hmm. Give yourselves a break. Make sure you get a vacation of some kind, if possible. Yeah. If only in your mind. Yep. We love you. Yep. Stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? Ah! This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Our producer is Alejandra Keck. This episode was engineered and mixed by Stephen Ray Morris. Our researcher is Gemma Harris. Email your hometowns and fucking hoorays to myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. Goodbye. Follow My Favorite Murder on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase My Favorite Murder merch.